0: Well, again, good morning, welcome, Santa Barbara Community Church, good to be together. As you already heard, my name's Benji, I serve as one of the pastors here, and I bring you greetings from the distant land of Oxnard. Um, your SBCC elders went on elder retreat in Oxnard this weekend, and we spent a lot of time in prayer and worship. We did just a little bit of ministry planning and calendaring and a whole lot of investing in these relationships with one another. Mike and I returned last night to be here with the rest of our church family this morning, but um, the rest of your elders, the other six of them, are making their way back probably now, actually. Um, And I want you to know, church, that one of the dominant themes, one of the repeated topics that came up over and over was deep love for this church church. Over and over, we were talking about recognizing we are imperfect, imperfect in our own leadership, but united in deep love for this church and really eager to see what God has in store for us together as we grow into all that Christ wants us to be. And so many of you prayed for the Elder Retreat. Thank you really a wonderful time away. Well, this weekend we come to the final installment of our brief 3-week series on prayer. Next week we'll jump into the Wilderness Wandering study. I'm really eager to get to that to look at these stories from Israel's ancient past both in our home groups and Sundays, but first we're going to give our attention once more to the topic of prayer. So Mike got us started a couple of weeks ago and helped us see just the the real inseparable connection between the glory of God and lives marked by prayer. If we increasingly believe that God is as glorious as He claims to be, we will increasingly become people of prayer. And in last week, we considered the truth that honest confession, both as individuals and collective, is the doorway to experiencing the grace of God. And before we move on to this week's teaching, I want to address one unfinished part of last week's teaching. It seems clear from conversations with many of you, this has been plaguing you. Um, I did not spend all of sixth grade at a table in the back of my classroom. (laughs) Many of you were like, hang on, you didn't... In fact, I got home and Greta said, you didn't even finish the story. I was like, oh, you're right. I had other things on my mind. Um... I I want you to know, as I recall, I spent very little of that day at that table. I'm fairly certain that my teacher let me feel my feelings for a bit and then reminded me that she was in charge and not me. And so I sat elsewhere. Well, as we've done each of the last two weeks, today we are going to dig into a gospel story. We're going to dig into the words of Jesus on the topic of prayer. So if you have your Bible, would you open it to Mark chapter 9? Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Like Luke, which we looked at each of the last two weeks, Mark is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And by the time we reach Mark chapter 9, Jesus is deep into his ministry of teaching, of healing, miraculously demonstrating the breakthrough of the kingdom of God. And with each authoritative teaching, each dramatic healing, hopes were being fueled, hopes that he might just be the one, the long-ago promise, the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed one who would finally deliver the people of God from oppression. And the story that we are about to read brings those hopes into even greater focus. And so if you are able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Well, at the outset of this story, James, Peter... John, they return from the ultimate mountaintop experience known as the transfiguration. You can read that story at the beginning of Mark 9 later this afternoon. And when they do, they come into town and they find themselves thrust into a scene of near total chaos. You've got a passionate argument between the religious leaders and a large crowd, a crowd that when they see Jesus is overwhelmed with wonder at the sight of him. You've got some disciples who clearly seem worn out, a convulsing and demon-possessed child. And a desperately pleading father who says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Can't you hear the desperation in his voice? Now, the gospel accounts regularly tell of Jesus showing his authority over the demonic realm so at first glance, the father's ask of the disciples may sound a little bit like a pop quiz on the first day of a new class. Like, hold on. We haven't even mastered the material. What are you asking of us? Except that way back in Mark 3, we read this. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called, him, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And later in Mark 6, we read this, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now the Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual realm of evil that exists in opposition to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. In fact, Claire Moore reminded our staff this week that about one-fourth of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels has to do with the demonic realm. So this might not be common conversation for us. This is not typical, polite dinner table topics, and yet the spiritual realm of evil is very real and very active in opposing the things of God. And so, William Lane comments on the plight that is faced by this suffering young man. He says, The violence of the seizures and the reference to repeated attempts to destroy the youth by hurling him into a fire or water indicate that the purpose of demonic possession is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. Now, remember, the disciples came into this particular encounter writing something of a winning streak when it came to this kind of a thing. And yet... In this particular situation, the Father reports to Jesus, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. Now, I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to that moment when you find yourself failing at the very thing you're supposed to be good at. The moment when you realize that your tried-and-true methods just aren't working. It is scary, it's disorienting, it can lead to deep questions of calling and, worth. and I imagine that's a bit of the shame cloud that the disciples were sitting in. And so when Jesus starts to arrive on the scene, they probably thought, oh, here comes the cavalry. This is so good. They probably expected Jesus to roll up on this dad, like, whoa, take it easy, bruh. These dudes are doing their best. They're trying, so pump the brakes on your sense of entitlement, homie. Is that not what Jesus' voice sounds like in your head? It's my, my head. I will say this, though, no matter what the voice of Jesus sounds like in your head, it probably doesn't very often say things like, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? So earlier this week, I was chatting with Mike in our office about this part of the passage, and I said, there are so many times in the Bible where Jesus says something confusing, and this has to be like in the top five for me. And I said, I've got to do some work on figuring out what Jesus really means so that people don't think that this is as harsh as it sounds. So I did that work and did that digging and searching and reading and comparing different things. And here's what I found out about verse 19. It's as harsh as it sounds. <laughs> it is. There, there is just consensus. Jesus has been driven past the point of frustration here to deep dismay and deep disappointment. But what isn't clear is with whom. Now, some believe that he is expressing deep dissatisfaction with his disciples. And others believe that he is expressing this kind of frustration with the crowd. And personally, I'm more persuaded by that argument. This crowd, which included the teachers of the law, Jesus says, you unbelieving generation. James Edwards writes this. He says, despite Jesus' prior rebuke of the disciples, the present judgment of Jesus does not appear to include them. The unbelieving generation is ostensibly a reference to the crowd, apart from the disciples. For generation occurs five times in Mark, but never with reference to the disciples. Even though the disciples are insufficient for the task of healing the demon-possessed boy, Jesus does not chastise them. Inability is simply a limitation, not a fault, as are hardness of heart and misunderstanding. The crowd is included in the latter. However, this crowd has shown themselves to be hard of heart, They've shown themselves to misunderstand Jesus and his mission in the world. So when the son is finally brought before Jesus, the demon manifests the kind of torment that has plagued this boy since childhood. For years, this foot soldier of the kingdom of darkness has sought to destroy one of God's beloved image bearers, and the father reports it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And then the father follows up with this plea, if you can do anything. Take pity on us and help us. This father's been on quite an emotional journey, even in our brief passage. In verse 17, it sure sounds like he set out with a lot of confidence. And yet when Jesus was not immediately available and Jesus's deputies on the scene weren't up to the task, his confidence began to waver. And now, once again, watching his son writhing and suffering, he is left with a desperate mixture of just a little bit of faith and probably a whole lot of skepticism. And the best he can muster is, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And in verse 23, Jesus responds with, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now to be clear, Jesus's reply probably has a little bit of incredulity in it, but more importantly, there's a whole lot of invitation in it. Jesus issues this father a call To return to that posture of confidence that he had when he first left his house. Back when he didn't know very much, but he knew enough to know that whatever it took, he had to get his son in front of Jesus. And what comes next in this story has been an encouragement to wobbly pilgrims for nearly 2,000 years. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe your road has featured similar twists and turns as the Father in our text. Perhaps your spiritual journey has been marked by peaks of confidence and valleys of doubt. Maybe your prayer life consists primarily of something akin to, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. If that's your story, take heart in the picture of the Savior on display in this story. Because Jesus responds to this desperate father and this helpless son with deep compassion and profound authority. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. There's no lecture. There's no shaming about minimal faith. There's no shaking of the head and disappointment. Just love and power poured out To bring two suffering ones closer to wholeness. I don't know what lies our enemy wants to use to keep you stuck, to keep you from fully experiencing that kind of transformative love. But I do know that for many who have walked the sometimes rocky road of doubt, a common lie can be that God is only interested in a class of super Christians who are free from sin and always secure in spiritual certainty. Hear me clearly. Such Christians are a myth. Jesus' compassion with this father is a direct assault on the lie that we have to clean ourselves up and get our acts together to approach the throne of God. The most put-together people with the most spiritual certainty in this whole scene are likely the teachers of the law, and Jesus labels them an unbelieving generation. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a father who can only muster honest cries like, if you can, and help me overcome my unbelief. And he went home rejoicing. Now to be clear, not all certainty is fatal and not all uncertainty is faithful. There are things that the scriptures speak clearly on and those who are in Christ must be ready to speak clearly and confidently on such things. We live in an age in which Smug skepticism has often been baptized as the only intellectually responsible and honest posture that one can hold. And yet the Apostle Peter writes this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Likewise, Jude calls believers to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There are answers to give, and a faith to contend for. But there is also a pursuit of answers that is ultimately in opposition to faith. An idolatrous form of certainty and self-trust that serves to enthrone ourselves rather than God. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is a kind of certainty that sees no need for faith. Fam, the grace shown to the Father in Mark 9 reminds us that our confidence is not in our own confidence, but in the faithfulness and truthfulness of the God who delivers even those who can only muster just enough faith to come to him. Again, James Edwards is helpful. He says, true faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. True faith is an unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able Now, at this point, you may be thinking, this is a fun Bible study, Benji, but I thought we were going to talk about prayer. Fair enough. So consider that the longest sermon introduction you've ever heard. So as you probably suspected, when we read through the passage, we chose to be in this text on this Sunday, in this series on prayer, because of the exchange between Jesus and his disciples in verses 28 and 29. Would you look at them again? After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And there you have the punchline for the whole story. This kind can come out only by prayer. So two Sundays ago, Mike walked us through what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. The most familiar version of that prayer is found in Matthew chapter 6. It opens, as you probably remember, with a glorious picture of the fatherhood of God And a concern for the glory of God's name. But then Jesus gives us this plea immediately after. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that phrase in the Lord's Prayer suggests a couple of things that resonate with our story from the Gospel of Mark. And the first is this. There is a kingdom of God. By that I mean not only an ethereal realm marked by unhindered access to God and open worship of him though I do mean that, but also a way of being that reflects the character of the gracious God who lovingly crafted this world, made humans in his image to extend his ways and his character throughout creation. There is a kingdom of God which is not yet fully on display in our world. Jesus would not have had to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if that was the reality we already lived in. Instead, Jesus' prayer reminds us that there is still a divide between heaven and earth it is, and it is God's heart to see that gulf undone. And I probably don't need to spend too much time trying to make this point because for so many of us, our lives have validated this claim far too often. In our fallen world, The presence and prevalence of sin is easily seen in our hearts, in our lives, and in our news feeds. And so for the next few minutes, I want us to consider the invitation of this text for the real world we live in. So there's a potentially true story, no one's quite certain, that in the early years of the 20th century, a London newspaper sent out an invitation to many noted authors to respond to this relatively straightforward prompt, what is wrong with the world today? One of the authors who was invited to respond was the renowned and witty Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton, and his response said, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And while humorous, I think he's on to something. There is in each of us, by virtue of our membership in the human family, something that is not as we were meant to live. Now, it is certainly true that by the grace of God, none of us is as bad as we could be, but none of us is as whole as we long to be, which is the very premise that undergirds so many of our New Year's resolutions, isn't it? We're three weeks into 2024. How are you doing on those New Year's resolutions? See, annually, we are encouraged to feel the distance between the lives that we actually lead and the lives that we long for and to resolve to become better. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a really good endeavor. Until. Until, like the disciples confronted with a demon-possessed boy and an increasingly disappointed father, we run into something inside of ourselves that is beyond our resources and our tried-and-true methods. And in those moments of deep, desperate looking into our own hearts, Jesus holds out hope beyond our tools and our track records this kind can come out only by prayer. Could it be that one of the things that keeps us from experiencing the kind of dramatic transformation we see in this story is our prideful self-assurance and a track record of success that makes it hard to believe Jesus' words that apart from me, you can do nothing? What if we took Jesus seriously enough to stop insisting on our own strength and our own systems and instead believe that he will be faithful to his promise to complete the good work that he began in us by transforming us into his own image? What if the growing awareness of our limitations and gaining mastery over our own sin and our own hearts, it drove us not to despondency, but actually to our knees in prayer? What if we more quickly lived into Jesus' insistence that prayer is an unassailable weapon against the darkness, whether inside of us or outside of us? This kind can come out only by prayer. And the the relevance to our news feeds isn't too difficult to see. Fallen human hearts continue to scar the world with obvious evidence of the fall. So we scroll through story after story of war Famine, slavery, sexual abuse, mass shootings, greed, genocide, spiritual abuse, abortion, dehumanization of God's beloved image bearers, whether LGBTQ individuals or those of different ethnicities, and so much more. We live every day with the fallout of sin in the context of sinful societies. And when faced with hurt and need and brokenness of such magnitude, some— Can become relentless advocates, shouting at every turn about the need for all eyes to be on the cause or the crisis that has gripped their hearts. You know the type. Maybe you are the type. Still, others can become heartlessly apathetic, shrugging at every turn, averting their eyes from any cause or crisis that might dare to grab a hold of their heart. You know the type. Maybe you are the type. And while it can be easy to adopt either unceasing outrage or unhopeful pessimism at the world's brokenness, the gospel calls the people of God to another posture altogether, unflinching realism about the state of our world that results in looking for solutions beyond our world. The Apostle Paul insists that the mess that we see is but a symptom of the real conflict, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If that's true, and to be clear, it is true, then the brokenness of our world serves as a profound invitation to pray. There will certainly be moments to act and to advocate, and we should never be surprised when God enlists our very lives in answer to your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. But the scriptures insist that so much of what we face lies beyond our tools. It lies beyond our track records, beyond our confidence and beyond our competencies. And so much of what we long to see made right, Jesus sums up with, this kind can come out only by prayer. So before we share or repost or advocate or before we shrug or or retreat or avoid, we must become people who increasingly turn to prayer as a first impulse. I also want to say, I think it's important to name that Jesus doesn't make any guarantees in this passage. The wording is not, this kind will always come out by prayer. Many of us have known the challenge of repeated and sincere prayers being met by the seeming silence of God. The Bible's calling in the face of such silence is to persist and trust that God is who he claims to be and will do what he's promised to do, even if we don't see how it all works out until we see him face to face. But our text today issues us a different challenge. It is a challenge to the illusion of our self-sufficiency. And I want to close by helping us respond to this challenge practically. Much like we did a couple of weeks ago, we're going to end this sermon by praying together in groups for the next few minutes. So can you get in groups of three to six? You may have to turn around. You may have to move a little. Um, I'm going to give us some specific prayer prompts in just a moment as we respond to the realities we know to be true in our lives and our world. So go ahead and get in groups. All right, let's start with this one. Let's start by giving God praise. Praise God that he is not waiting for us to clean ourselves up before we come to him, but welcomes those who respond to him in faith. Let's give God praise for his gracious invitation. Next, let's confess our tendency to trust in our own resources before we turn to God for his power. Let's ask God, by His Spirit, to transform each of us as individuals more and more into the image of Christ. Maybe name some ways that you want to see the Spirit of God drive out the darkness you know lives in your heart. And now let's do the same thing corporately and ask God by his spirit to transform our church collectively into a place where his kingdom is on obvious display on earth as it is in heaven. And finally, let's name the broken things in our world, situations of desperate need beyond human capacity, the kind of challenges that can only come out by prayer. Let's name the darkness we see around us. Father, we give you praise this morning that you are worthy of our trust. Even as we navigate a world in which sin's effects are still so obvious to us, whether we are looking into our hearts or looking out our windows. God, we pray that you would move, that you would do things by your spirit that are so far beyond our capacities. God, we regularly feel overwhelmed and under-resourced, but you never feel that way. And so, God, would you move by your spirit? Would you give us increasing passion as a church to come to you in prayer for the things that can only come out by prayer? Lord, forgive us for our pride, our self-sufficiency, our reluctance to admit our need for you to be who you say you are. God, glorify yourself in our midst and in our world by fulfilling Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven. We praise you that you are worthy of this trust even when the best that we can muster is I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Fam, we can be honest about the brokenness in our lives and in our world because Jesus honestly face the brokenness. So when we pray, we speak to one who has known darkness unlike any other. The darkness of leaving the glories of heaven to make his dwelling among us. The darkness of taking all of the brokenness of sin upon himself on the cross. The darkness of feeling the Father turn away. The darkness of the tomb. And yet when we pray, We speak to one who overcame death itself, one who sympathizes with us in our weakness, one who dwells in glorious light seated at the right hand of the Father where he always lives to intercede for us, his siblings. This is what we remember and celebrate week by week at this table, the radically pursuing love of God on display through his identifying and substitutionary life, death, and resurrection in the person of Jesus, the family of God, is made up not of those who cleaned themselves up and got themselves together, but those who came to the end of themselves and found that Jesus is able to forgive, to redeem, to restore, and to transform those who come with even as little as I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That invitation is wide open today. I recognize in a room of this many people, there may be many who are just here wondering about this Jesus. Maybe you have walked a road similar to this Father, marked by disappointments. I want you to know that there is a gracious and loving Heavenly Father who waits to welcome you with arms wide open, who longs to show you your belovedness, who longs to show you His trustworthiness, and who longs to transform you for His glory Into the image of Christ. If you want to know more about that, I encourage you to come talk to one of our prayer teams on the side or in the back. But family, we have a meal in front of us where we will take bread and remember that Jesus allowed his body to be pierced. And we will dip it in wine and remember that Jesus allowed his blood to be shed, poured out for the forgiveness of sins and for transformation, not just of individuals, but of this world that God loves and one day will return to redeem completely. That is good news worth celebrating, so let's come in a spirit of celebration as we continue in our worship.